Welcome to Medieval Islamic Medicine. In this episode, Peter talks about the relationship between medicine, religion and magic. We've talked uh, about the formal medical setup, you know, like this elite medicine, the hospitals. We've talked a bit about uh, competition within the marketplace and also certain people being depicted as charlatans and the women being denigrated. And this brings us uh, to another point, uh, an important point, and this is uh, people's reaction toward health and disease, or mostly to disease and affliction, by turning to the world of religion, to the spiritual, to the supernatural even. And uh, these reactions formed as much part of um, you know, like the armory of what you did when you became ill as did uh, um, elite medicine or this more theoretical-based uh, medical tradition. And um, in order to explore this, I'd like to start us off with an example of um, a woman curing somebody. So what happened is that there we, he we hear the story in a 10th century source, we he hear a story, and the story involves a rich person coming to the countryside, and he gets a rash on his, uh, on his, on his lower leg. And um, he shows this to his host, and uh, he asks uh, whether there are any physicians around. And he says, no physicians, but we have a wise woman, or we have like an old woman who knows about these things. And this woman does two things. On the one hand, she applies a bandage with certain, you know, like normal ingredients. And on the other hand, she kind of reads out some sort of spell in order to cure this, um, this condition. And three days, three days later, lo and behold, this person is cured. So what this shows us is that, uh, on the one hand, men could turn to women in the absence of male practitioners, as in this case. On the other hand, we see that uh, certain, you know, like ingredients and a bandage could coexist with, uh, you know, like a more magical approach towards healing. Now let's look at uh, this magic a bit more. I mean, obviously, modern people or physicians feel uncomfortable about magic. I mean, you know, like nobody wants to be accused of using magic. And many Muslims have problems with magic. I mean, like uh, Wahhabi Islam is very strict and they say no magic. I mean, this is like devil's work. I mean, I don't know whether they would quite put it like that. But I mean, like this is, this is not Islamic. This is not what we want. Um, but if we look at the medieval Islamic world, we find many artifacts or many manuals of medicinal magic. So one of these artifacts are magic medicinal bowls. So basically you have a bowl, maybe you know, like some 20 centimeters, like, you know, like seven, eight inches, uh, you know, like in diameter, um, with inscription around it. And from these inscriptions, it's clear what you were supposed to do is pour water in it and then drink from it, sometimes reading out certain spells but other bowls could have, uh, you know, like surahs from the Quran or other more religious texts or prayers uh, um, written on them. So sometimes the line is difficult to draw between what is a prayer and what constitutes magic or what is just like a spell or even the invocation of the devil. Or, or I mean, jinns, for instance, uh, you know, like supernatural beings were recognized, I mean, are mentioned in the Quran and are recognized as, you know, like, Good orthodoxy, if you want to use this word. I mean, it's not entirely uh, entirely correct term, but so there are like a different uh, different things which exist within you know like 
Orthodox Islam and other things, you know, like it's hard to draw the distinction. Another thing which people did is write amulets. So you write maybe a prayer, maybe like some mag magical formula. You fold it, you put it into some sort of amulet. Uh, there are manuals on how to make these amulets. This is another thing which people did. And both the, you know, like magic medicinal bowls or you know, like these amulets, they, um, they form part of the popular culture, but we know for certain that uh, some caliphs or you know, like high-ranking officials or well-off people also resorted to them, and not always in absence of uh, of rational medicine. So sometimes people have this idea: there's rational medicine and there's irrational medicine, and irrational medicine gets used when rational medicine fails. But we have many examples where the two kind of coexist side by side or were used in conjunction and so on and so forth. And there's a certain amount of debate. Some physicians say, oh, well, this is all humbug and you like, don't use that. Others say, oh, well, you know, if people believe it, let them do it. It can't do any harm. And others, you know, like even might, uh, might use it in their therapy, therapy themselves. So there's a whole, whole range uh, on that level. Maybe I can also talk very briefly about uh, astrology. I mean, astrology is another thing which nowadays we dismiss, you know, like a horoscope and stuff. You know, like you read it in the sun and say, oh, well, you know, like middle of the week, yeah, you'll have success in business. And you say, yeah, well, whatever. You know, like so people are often skeptical. They still read it. They These horoscopes are popular, but people place little faith in them. Now, astrology, I mean, predicting how the stars and the movement of the stars would influence human development was a very, very important uh, aspect of uh, medieval Islamic culture, as it was uh, an important aspect of medieval Western or even Renaissance uh, culture. So there's an astrological medicine. There's uh, People are told to take certain remedies on certain days when the stars were in the right conjunction. And uh, we even hear of a case in the ninth century of a woman delaying to take a certain drug because the stars are not right and then actually dying. And maybe she would have lived had she taken this uh, uh, this drug earlier. So, so astrology also forms part of medicine and forms part of elite medicine as well as uh, popular medicine. Now finally, when we talk about the spiritual and the religious, obviously we have to talk about... Uh, you know, the religion of Islam. And there's something called the medicine of the prophet or prophetic medicine. There are manuals which collect uh, the sayings of the prophet, so-called hadith, or which look at how the prophet behaved, his sunnah, his, 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 his behavior, in relation to medical problems, in relation to, um, to di disease. And so these, uh, there's actually like from the 12th, 13th century onwards, there's a great flourishing of this sort of medicine, uh, medicine of the prophet, of this sort of medical genre. And uh, what happens is that you can basically divide these manuals into, you know, two kinds. One kind is very much, you know, like, like other hadith scholarship, like other scholarship looking at the utterances of the prophet, uh, they collect them and they say, you know, like, for instance, honey is, is a powerful remedy and they look at other things and they look at maybe prayers um, and they say, this is what you should do. This is what the prophet did in this situation. You should do the same. On the other hand, you have um, a number of, you know, manuals on prophetic medicine, 
which adopt uh, Greek humor pathology, which read like uh, manuals of Greek, Greek humor pathology with a little bit of sayings of the prophet thrown in. And this already shows you that uh, um, these religious manuals were not kind of written in opposition to the scientific medicine, if you want to call it this, uh, but rather, uh, you know, like they complemented it uh, in a way. And uh, although we see elite physicians, you know, like denigrating charlatans, they do not very much engage with this prophetic medicine, this, this, this genre of literature, and this has led certain scholars to believe that, um, well, it was more of an academic pursuit, a theological pursuit with little direct consequences on the ground immediately at that time. Nowadays, in, in the modern Islamic world, these manuals are very popular and a lot of people even use them in order to get cured. But um, in general, prayer and turning to God, maybe reading the Quran, certainly was also part of people's reaction towards uh, disease and affliction. One could think of uh, when people use both you know, like the scientific or like the rational medicine and the irrational medicine, they were just hedging their bets. Well, I don't know how cynical they were, whether they were just thinking, well, it doesn't matter when we whether we use both and uh, it can't do any harm. I mean, I mentioned earlier that certain physicians said, let people use it. I mean, it doesn't do anything. And uh, if it makes them feel better, it might help them. And this obviously is an important aspect of even you know, like this, you know, more scholarly medicine, this more elite medicine, how you felt, you know, like whether you were in good spirits or bad, whether you hoped you had hoped to get cured, that inf influenced your ability to recuperate and recover greatly. People were aware of this, and certain physicians probably were, you know, like. Um, okay with people using magic and they might have thought like okay let's hedge our bets and um, you know why not obviously one of the big questions which we have to ask now that we are coming to the towards the end of uh, of our program is the following i painted a picture of medieval islamic medicine and i drew out examples mostly from the islamic heartland i mostly talked about baghdad a little bit about egypt syria that sort of thing but, um, well, we, we heard at the beginning that the Islamic world stretched from, you know, like Muslim Spain in the West all to India. And one of the questions is how homogenous was the practice and theory of medicine? Um, were people treated in the same way? Uh, or what about the time frame? Somebody in the 8th century and somebody in the 15th century. Uh, can people even compare all these things? And I have to say that um, medieval Islamic medicine as a whole is a, heavily understudied area. There are very, very few people who work with the sources and to produce high-quality scholarly historical work on that period. And therefore, one can only draw out these individual examples because uh, nothing comparable to the big social studies of, let's say, you know, like 13th or 14th century England or, you know, like... Uh, late um, medieval Italy and so on and so forth. None of these um, studies exist uh, for specific areas uh, in the Islamic world. And so therefore, it's very, very difficult to, to, um, to make more specific judgments about individual localities. Now, there are a couple of things one can say nonetheless. One is that uh, medical texts certainly traveled. So whether you were on the shores of the Guadalquivir or the Ganges, uh, you could have a copy of um, 
Avicenna's canon of medicine in front of you very easily. That's so medical texts, medical ideas travel. This framework of human pathology, you find it in India and you find it in Muslim Spain, no problem. So certain ideas, certain concepts encompassed uh, this huge geographic expanse. Uh, now development over time, again, certain ideas you know, like the, the framework human pathology stayed the same, but we've looked at a couple of innovations. I mean, I talked about hospitals being open to Muslims and non-Muslims in Baghdad. Now, there's one hospital in Cairo in the 13th century. We know that non-Muslims weren't allowed there. So obviously, what I say for Baghdad in the 10th century does not necessarily apply for Cairo in the 13th century. And uh, in, you know, like in such a short program, it's not always possible to draw out all these distinctions. And very often, we just lack the studies there. Hundreds and hundreds of sources and text, unedited, never translated, never read, and uh, people just haven't done the work uh, for for me to be more precise about this. But it's absolutely right. There must have been great variety, and uh, this variety certainly needs to be studied much more. In our final episode, we examine the impact that the Islamic tradition has had on neighboring cultures and the modern theory and practice of medicine. Peter's book, Medieval Islamic Medicine, written with Emily Savage-Smith, is now available.